Happy to have you aboard here for the really big barbecue show. Boing. We cook because we have to, and we grill because we want to. Hit me. Fine. How you doing? <laughs> you have a great show. I'm a big fan. Boing. So what, what, what seems to be the problem here? This man looks like he's dead, and he's in the, in the crackle. Charbono. It's all about the Charbono, dude. Succulent fish. What? He ate two feet for wiener. Listen, Lavernius, shut your face. I'm shaking like a dog shit peach seed. <laughs> we have top men working on it right now. And welcome into the second hour. You're watching the Barbecue Central Show. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. We talk about barbecue and grilling related items, only the most important items that are gracing the live fire stage at the moment. And brought to you right here in Bomb City, USA. Bomb City, USA. Cleveland. Boing. Still to come on the show this evening at about... 10 or 11 minutes from now, John Marcus will be joining me, newly minted Barbecue Hall of Famer. You can follow me socially at BBQ Central Show on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Snapchat. Live video feeds of the show on Facebook and Twitch slash BBQ Central Show. Also on the YouTubes slash RD Rempe. And we are live audibly on Clubhouse as well if you'd rather just listen and not watch. And I certainly understand that. You can also get an ad-free podcast feed experience through Apple Podcasts. So if that's how you take in the podcast and you don't want to hear the ads, just subscribe and they will magically be removed for you. Coming up on the best moments of the Barbecue Central show in 10 minutes or less this Friday, episode 233, taking you back to June 7th of 2011, where you will find me having had a conversation with Jeff Stiff was at the time the pitmaster of a team called Big Creek Barbecue. And this is really where we take a look at how Operation Barbecue Relief really got started, if you can believe. It was 11 years ago, almost to the day. It's uh, a week after I had this conversation. So again, it was June 7th of 2011 that I talked with Jeff. And if you don't know the very beginnings of Operation Barbecue Relief, There was an incredibly intense storm system that moved through Joplin, Missouri that spawned a widespread of tornadoes and incredible destruction and damage. Jeff Stiff and Stan Hayes, who of course we all know, saw a need. They were talking to each other. They were around the same type of hometown and got on the phone and said, hey, we need to do something for the folks that have been affected. How can we mobilize? What can we do well And how can we put what we do well into motion in order to help first responders, in order to help people that have been affected by these storms? How do we do this? And they brainstorm some ideas, and within 24 hours, they were putting a plan together that saw eight different states and various pitmasters saying, hey, we want to come in and help cook, or we want to donate money, or we want to donate food, whatever the case may be. They had some connections into Sam's Club through Uh, Carolyn Wells and KCBS. So leveraging all that they could put together that first Operation Barbecue Relief effort. And uh, certainly we all know what it's grown into now. And it's an award-winning organization. This specific one, a great listen for those that don't know how Operation Barbecue Relief got started. 
Uh, it'll be just a eight, nine minute sample, but you can certainly go back in and get the whole show if you would prefer by clicking on the link that is in the show notes as well. So you can hear all about how Operation Barbecue Relief got started. And again, that's coming from a June 7th, 2011 interview that I did with then pitmaster of Big Creek Barbecue, Jeff Stiff. I don't know if Jeff is actually still into competition barbecue or not, but he had a great spice wine smoker back in the day. I mean, that thing was awesome. Uh, don't forget, if you want to hear a past guest or segment again that might be lost in the archives, email John, J-O-N, at thebbqcentralshow.com. He's the executive producer of The Best Moment Show. And let him know what you would like to hear. He'll do his best to meet your expectation. Upcoming shows for the rest of June include visits from newly minted Hall of Famer Leanne Whippin. We'll also talk with Zach Myron. Daniel Vaughn will make a visit. And, of course, at the end of the month, we know what's going to be happening. The conclusion of Season 3 of Barbecue Central Show's American Idol, where your faithful host... And my embedded correspondent from the great city of Utah, Rusty Monson, will be singing in the final. We have decided on the produced duet that we will play for you in advance of us actually singing live. And that's what makes the finals the most intense part of this now season three of American Idol Barbecue Central Show Edition. Rusty will sing live in Utah. I will sing live here in Cleveland. And then we will turn the voting over to the American public and we will be crowned a new season three champion. It will not be a repeat. John didn't make it into the finals. He was the returning champion. And Jeff Rice from season one also not in. He didn't take part this year. He had some other things going on. So this will be a newly minted season three champion coming up in just a few short weeks. So stay tuned for all of those shows. Also, a month Two months ago, I had the lead research and developing guy from Kingsford on, and we were talking about the then newly released flavor boosters. There's a lot of people on social media right now that are posting about these flavor boosters. Do your due diligence. I doubt that you will be seeing a lot of naysaying in regards to these flavor boosters. But there's an article through Mel Magazine that was penned that was completely independent. This person is not sponsored. Uh, there's no in kind. There's nothing like that's going on, just his straight review. And then he also linked three or four different YouTube reviews, also independent, not sponsored, on what they thought of the Kingsford flavor boosters. So if you're interested in seeing that, I posted it on Twitter a little bit earlier and uh, if you're not into Twitter, you don't like doing social media, just email me that you'd like the link. I'll go ahead and copy it and send it over your way. It's a little bit of an interesting read. It might be a little bit counter thought than what you're seeing a lot of on social media. So let me know, Greg at the BBQ Central Show.com. And I missed a couple of these before we get over to John Marcus here. Some more listener feedback. Jim in West Virginia writing in, Greg, longtime fan of you. And Sam, the cooking guy, glad you were able to reunite last week for the normal hijinks and nonsense. Jim, really, it's fun and frivolity. However, he continues to write, did you guys get a little testy with each other when going into the Pittsburgh steak talk? As a fan of the show, there's no better segment than this one. You guys should consider doing a podcast together regards Jim. Jim, thank you for writing it. 
I'm not testy. I've talked to Sam two or three times over the course of the last seven days. Uh, we're fine. Remember, much like my next guest is going to be able to confirm, while the show lives to educate and bring the best guests to the stage, I'm also into entertainment. So if it appeared that Sam and I were getting a little testy with each other, more entertainment than anything else. So don't worry about that. Mike in Colorado writing in, Greg, I'm here to tell you that Adrian Miller is easily the most underappreciated guest you have on the show. Very accomplished. He has awards. Now another James Beer Award, by the way. He is also doing new research. He is always pushing the envelope in the food world, but most importantly, he is always looking to expand diversity into the things he's interested in. This is shown in the books that he writes and how he has helped redefine the Barbecue Hall of Fame. You should have him on as a monthly guest. Regards, Mike. I've thought about that, Mike. However, Adrian is a very busy man, and he's into a lot of things. And those that are into a lot of things typically aren't available monthly. He could be, he could be a quarterly guest, possibly, like Daniel. Like Hey Grill Hey, like Just Pryle. I'll look into it and report back. But thank you for writing in regards. Let's talk about Big Papa Smokers, the one-stop online shop for all things barbecue, a curated selection of only the best outdoor cooking and grilling supplies, getting you on the path to better barbecue results in no time. Big Papa's known for the championship rubs and seasonings, popular flavors like Sweet Money, Cattle Prod, Cash Cow, all proven winners on the competition circuit and in the backyard. Big Papa's offering 13 perfectly balanced flavors that transform ordinary meals into extraordinary, in fact, new stuff that is out right now that I have to try. They're also the owner of Granny's Barbecue Sauce, so if you're looking for a new go-to sauce that will please everybody, give Granny's a try. And they're selling the cookers, right? If you're looking for a versatile smoker that's easy to use, check out that Mac 2-Star General Pellet Cooker. Big Papa Smokers, the exclusive Mac dealer, even offering special packages. If you're not a fan of pellet smokers or you don't really know what grill you want or need, call them and ask questions. That's what they're there for, 877-828-0727. That's 877-828-0727. Or shop their website, bigpapasmokers.com. That's B-I-G-P-O-P-P-A smokers.com. We are back with John Marcus right after this. Stick around. Be right back. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Presented by the Ryder Deluxe Pellet Grills from Oklahoma Joe's. Howard Stern, Jim Rome, Dan Patrick, and Greg Rampey. The Mountain Rushmore of talk show entertainment. Now, let's get back to the Barbecue Central Show. This portion being brought to you by Pit Barrel Cooker, the most unbelievable outdoor cooking device on the planet, currently available in three sizes and a host of accessories. Whether you are a beginner or a professional, definitely a cooker you want to add to the arsenal, visit pitbarrelcooker.com and tell them Barbecue Central Show sent you. My next guest was last on the show almost two years ago to the day. Most well-known in our industry for exposing competition barbecue to the great unwashed and by doing so, created a whole generation of competitive barbecue cooks in 2020. 
He was one of the nine finalists of the Barbecue Hall of Fame. His name was on that list a year later. However, in 2022, he gets over on the it's just nice to be nominated list and jumped in to the Barbecue Hall of Fame along with three other folks. Little known fact, born a Buckeye, now residing on the Upper West Side of New York City and sometimes upstate. We hit the Oklahoma Joe's Rider DLX Pelligrills hotline and welcome back one of the most accomplished writing minds of all time with writing credits to prove it. John Marcus joining us on the show. Hey, John. Greg, how are we doing technologically? So far, so good. Let's cross fingers. I'm thrilled. Yes, you sound great. You and I had like, we had a little sound check earlier today and then the day before we were working out some technical bugs, but you, uh, you had a steady hand. I was panicked, but you were steady. With... 14 years of technological <laughs> advice to offer, and now a whole year and a half of telling people, you got to get that microphone or else. It, I better be able to at least give some kind of advice or I have a lot of egg on my face. Do, do people who listen to the show and sometimes watch it, do they know that there's a microphone requirement to guests that appear on the show? Yes. That you have very strict rules? Yes. Uh, not only will I invite you to come on the show, once you accept, I will then place a mandate where you spend money in order to come on my show. But really, I'm just trying to help you out, the guest, and the listener out. Why put in audio hurdles when we just don't need them. Make the listening experience as seamless and easy and audio brilliant as possible. And here's the kind of payoff you get. For me, example, just for example, yeah. I had no idea I'd introduced uh, the show to the great unwashed. See? Until you, just, until you just said that. I do not think of our audience as the great unwashed, but I'll beg to differ there with you in that uh, I myself was the great unwashed when it came to barbecue. At some point, we I all were, I think. Nothing, we, that's how you start. You'd start and, and with, I believe I've made every mistake possible on my path to really learning how to do it, including a weekend cook I had actually a couple of days ago that uh, was a total disaster. We can talk about that later, but I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy to have you back. As I had mentioned, it's been almost two years to the day since you were on the last time. I think the ending subject was pay-per-view barbecue television. It was pandemic, yeah. and there was some kind of secret competition going off in Youngstown, Ohio, of all places, if you can believe it, after I dug it out of the guy that was putting it on, but that's neither here nor there. In the meantime, John Marcus has gotten in to the barbecue hall of fame after bringing a bridesmaid for two years prior to that. So uh, what was it like getting the phone call earlier that Wednesday morning now, uh, you know, three weeks ago or whenever it was from Emily Park saying, Hey, uh, not only were you on the nine finalist list, but now you're in the hall. It was an emotional phone call for me. I mean, I have a feeling that Emily had a few other of those calls to make. Um, but, uh, barbecue is very dear to my heart and it has been really kind to me and introduced me to, uh, a, a large group of people I would have never met, including yourself. Had I not done, I mean, it changed my life to a great degree. Um, it, uh, also created these really gradated burn marks on my forearms. That's what happens to me when I cook, I always get burned. Uh, I see them as badges of honor. 
I once had, this is something I, I haven't told many people. I was at a competition once in Connecticut. So, you know, right there, I'm in trouble. But I drove over to Connecticut. I had my, my, my team, Central Pork West, and we, we, uh, we, we cooked it. Um, and uh, we didn't do that well. Cause I'm just going to fault the judging at a Connecticut barbecue oh, contest. It's not, it was, we, we turned in champion food. I think talk about the great unwashed. <laughs> Again, I'm one of the, you know, almost like really executive members of that category. And I went, they get, they had a big new metal trash can for you to dump your ashes in. And I had, my ashes were collected from my smoker and put into a small metal trash can. And I carried it over, and as I tipped it to pour the small trash can into the bigger trash can of all these, you know, these are live coals yeah. and ashes still. The heat of what was in my can burned my hands, and I dropped the small trash can into the bigger trash can. <laughs> now, you and I, being from Ohio or living in Ohio, we know what silo explosions are, oh, yeah. are like and what they're made of because it's all these small particles in the air igniting. And that's exactly what happened. There was a, an explosion. It blew the smaller can about 25 feet in the air, and a big black fireball and smoke ball went up in the air. <laughs> And I was blown back a little bit. And the next thing I knew, something felt really, really odd. I had a fireball in my pants. No way. Ashes got down into my pants. And I, so I was beating out my groin area. <laughs> and I had some very, I had some third degree burns down, down in the, you know, in the forested area. Mm -hmm. And I'm a, I'm a mature man now. I mean, you know, I'm in my 60s. So. That this was twenty years ago, so I, you know, there was some forest, and but there it was gone. Oof! And uh, yeah, so Scorched that's earth. like one of my issues. What's that? Scorched earth. Scorched earth. Yeah, it was like I thought I'd turn around and see Smokey the Bear going like you know, see what happened. <laughs> I, it was really a very traumatic experience, but all of it is like so so much learning mm. that you can do every time you cook. So. Um, I, and all this, so going back to the phone call, all these things kind of came flooding back to me when Emily called me and she has such a nice voice and it's such a great call to get when you get the call. Cause, um, when, when you're nominated and you don't get inducted, you don't get any calls. <laughs> so it's like being stood up at a date, yeah. you know, it's, it's like you, you show up at the bar and that person you talk to on the phone doesn't come. But uh, they're so nice about it and, uh, uh, friendly and what the things that drew me into barbecue were like what the phone call was. And it was very emotional in that way. And I'm, I'm very proud of it. I'm very happy to be part of that. You go in with Ed Mitchell, Joe Traeger and Leanne Whippen, obviously, you know, Leanne very well through, uh, TV time mm -hmm. and so forth. Do you have any thoughts about your fellow classmates? I don't want to drag it out, but uh, we have other things to get to, but what do you well, think? Well, I, I've worked with Leanne and I just adore her. She's, she's a great chef and she's also someone who has really put in the time and also succeeded at levels that like only a few people can really dream of as far as doing restaurants, a, a restaurant in Chicago, for God's sakes, that's very big accomplishment. And she comes from barbecue royalty 
I mean, her, her, her dad was one of the original, original, like he should be on the Mount Rushmore of, of competition barbecue. Her father, kind man, extremely knowledgeable. He was always very good to me and to the show. And, um, and then Ed Mitchell is like truly a legend. Mm -hmm. I've gotten to cook the barbecue block party in New York City with Ed Mitchell a few times when I was with Chris Lilly and Big Bob Gibson. And he always came with those whole hog cookers. That he makes these whole hog cookers that you can tow behind your car. Have you, have you ever seen oh, one of those? Oh, sure, yeah. They're they're pretty fantastic, and and you know they'd all go to work and they put the hogs in and they surround it with briquettes and close it up and they go home for a few hours. They knew exactly what they were doing. See, he's the real deal. Traeger is like you know that's a legendary name and that continues to be. I mean, I'm a fan of anything that can get the food done and get it done well. You know, that really tastes a barbecue and he's got that. So who am I leaving out? That's it. Yourself? Well, I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's kind of a dream come true. And I'm looking for, I love Kansas City and I'm looking forward to, to attending. And, you know, I may even, I may even have a plus one with me. Oh? Yeah, I'm, I won't speak at length about it, but I mean, it's that serious. You can't just go by yourself. Oh. I mean, if this can impress somebody, they're coming with me. I didn't know if you were looking for a, a hype man or somebody to really introduce you to get that crowd jumping. But, you know, I know a guy, by the way, who <laughs> might be interested in doing that. Well, I would <laughs> listen. I could. I don't think I could do any better than having you do that. I, w I got a text from the great Ray Lampy, Dr. Barbecue. Mm-hmm. And he said, guess what? I'm the one who's going to be introducing you. Ah, yes. And he said, I can't wait. And then he had like four <laughs> flames, I, I, you know, after that. So uh, the roasting will probably begin before I even get anywhere near the podium, hmm. is my guess. After the announcement is made, do you see any increase in social media followings or aside from me asking you to come on the show or have you gotten requests to do any associated media um i uh uh i have not uh you know i'm i'm a little sh shy on social media i mean i'm out there and certainly i i, I tweet and and i mean i listen i put pictures of raw meat on my twitter account i'm i'm all in but um, no, there hasn't been, has been, I'm sort of a behind the scenes kind of person. So I, I don't know, maybe as we get closer, I, it would be nice to get a, a bump from it and that may happen, but I'm just going to be happy to be there. And certainly I'll be posting my videos of mm -hmm. having been there. So John's happy to be in the barbecue hall of fame. He's got three other great inductees that he's happy to be alongside. And we're anxious to see how that whole induction ceremony goes down at the American Royals. So we'll be looking forward to that here in a handful of months. I thought in the balance of the time, we would do a little origin story of John Marcus. Sure. Uh, you know, we're constantly getting new listeners and new watchers of the show, new into barbecue. Maybe they they missed what I call the golden era of barbecue with pitmasters being on television and all that fun stuff. But let's start all the way back in the beginning. You know, as I had mentioned in the open, John, you are originally from a smaller town west and south of Columbus known as London, Ohio. What do you recall about that time prior to getting into the high school years? Uh, what kind of a kid were you and what was family life like? Wow. Uh, that's I, um, 
I am um, somebody who, uh, are you still there? I lost your picture. Yes, I just went on a tie shot for you. Many switchers. Well, thanks. I was <laughs> I was hoping I wouldn't have to get into this. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, you know, being in a small town, and my father was um, one of two or three town doctors when I was growing up. So we were a known family. I mean, he was, you know, a small town doctor who made house calls and delivered babies into his 70s. Wow. And one of my favorite things with my dad when I would return to town was we'd take a walk around town. It was like four or five traffic lights. That's it. And uh, I would just point like point at people sort of subtly. When my father, did you deliver them? That was the game we played. And he would go... Yeah. Or no, no, no. Dr. Bacon. And we had, there was a Dr. Bacon in my town. Dr. Bacon did that one. And so he, he was known. I, I went along on house calls with him. I think he wanted to include me on all those things that he was hoping that I would become a doctor, like my two brothers became physicians. Um, my twin is a surgeon. My older brother was trained as an internist and did general practice. Um, I was like, because I was a twin, we were sort of a yin and yang. The two of us were, I would say we were trouble. We were, um, a small town makes you free. There's no big city worries. Uh, you know, we were out on our bicycles until in the summertime until 10, 11 at night. We used to shoot off bottle rockets. Uh, we, we had a good friend who was down the block from us. We, you know, we felt very like safe and we felt we were creative kids. We had a, um, uh, Dixieland band when I was in high school and we entertained and we, uh, took an ad out. I mean, we loved entertaining. Like I would get phone calls at the house on the doctor's line and a guy would have called up and said like, well, this is like one of the band members, right? And I said, yeah, my twin and I were in the band. And he would say, well, what kind of entertainment can we get for $75? <laughs> and uh, that was a lot of money for us. And we would go drive out into the country to like some barn dance and play. And I, we, I learned how to do square dance calls. <laughs> and so it was a very like um, nurturing childhood. In high school, were you a good student? I was a great student because uh, I was great on the curve. So I was the number two student. I graduated the number two student in my class. Really? With a grade point average of 3.1. Wow. That, was, that made me number two. And the number one student in class, Cheryl Pass, uh, who I really wanted to take to the prom, but she she had a, another boyfriend who was actually in the band with us. Um, Cheryl Pass was number one with a perfect four point oh. So uh, I, I academically, I I went to college ill prepared. The you know rural rural high school we had teachers who hadn't gone to college, and my brother and I were up to no good. Like, you know, one of the favorite things we did on a, in our seventh grade class, we had a math teacher and uh, we loved getting little tricks and things from a novelty catalog. I think it was called the Johnson Smith catalog. And our favorite thing was this, uh, this rubber dirt dog turd. 
I remember it was called Doggy Done It. Hmm. And I loved that thing. And and we brought it in. And then when our teacher, before our teacher got into class, he was about a minute late getting class. We were there. We put it on his desk. And when he came, it was about a two-minute laugh from the class when he looked down and saw the dog poop on the on the desktop. And I just looked up. I, my, my seat was next to his desk. I looked up at him and said, a great Dane was here. <laughs> and he said, you know what? Why don't you two boys stay after class? I'd like to have a private talk with you. Oh, I bet. And that was the only time in high school I got, I got whacked. Oh, Paddled yeah. to my asshole, Mr. Morris. Yeah. Big whacking. Character builder. Oh, uh, I thought that was just abuse. <laughs> today, <laughs> today you get called in. A teacher probably gets really fired for that, right? Yeah. Oh, you can't. Yeah. You don't. Yeah, and yeah. because. But for me, I think I got smacked growing up four or five times total, and I remember what each time was for. Hmm. And I'm listen. I'm not on rooftops with a rifle. I'm doing fine psychologically. But I mean, I could go any minute. Yeah. But I'm doing okay, and and um, I think it was okay in my case. I mean, I think it, I think it can be a terrible thing. I don't know. I don't have clearly. I'm childless. I you're, don't have kids. You're in high school. You mentioned you're in part of this Dixieland band, and in the yeah. meantime, you got to take breaks. You have you know a, a downset or an offset. You're writing skits for in between sets, like in the break. So is this where you're starting to foster the writing? At the age of like 15 and 16, I would write these short sketches between playing songs like Please Release Me and, you know, uh, also playing like Jada, <clears throat> which was an old song. We played, so one of our band members found a bunch of brittle yellow music in a steamer trunk so we played old songs and i would write these sketches and we'd perform them and it was kind of intoxicating for us to get laughs and i thought like i might be able to do this and then i began to send uh jokes off to uh bob hope at the age of 17. so i thought uh if, if i was reading the timeline correctly you were uh after you did the dixieland thing you were sending liners to some syndicated columnist and he started uh, using he was a that. Buckeye too. Yeah. He was an Ohioan named Earl Wilson. Yeah. And Earl. for a couple of decades, Earl, Earl was like, you know, one of the leading gossip columnists of New York and Broadway and show business. And, um, he, uh, I had read at the age of 16, I'd read that Woody Allen started by writing for Earl Wilson and getting you know a byline in there and uh i thought like maybe i can do that too and i sent earl wilson a bunch of jokes about how small my town was in ohio now these are jokes written by a 16 year old yeah and he would publish them and give me a byline <laughs> and that like was my father was a little upset by how encouraging that was to me he saw me slipping away when it was like you know john marcus says in a nationally syndicated newspaper column. So then I began, but it, but it started to make some people in the town a little mad at me. 
as you're starting to get ready to go to college, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Overall, I mean, do you have a, a good supportive relationship from your parents or uh, as you said, you, you're, you're getting this encouragement from a nationally syndicated columnist. Is he trying to quell that encouragement at all? Well, I, as we talked about before, you know, I've had a lot of therapy, so I can look back on my childhood and see what was positive about it <laughs> in mixed in with all the negatives. So I'll tell you a couple of positive things. One is my mom was an artist. So she liked the idea that one of her sons was not going to be a doctor. She really liked that. She wasn't too fond of doctors. And, uh, and you lump my dad in with that. Uh, but my father, who really thought the only true profession in the world was being a physician. He used to say that. He'd read the medical magazines on the front porch. We lived on a cobblestone street with elm trees. And um, he would put, he'd be reading the magazines. He'd put them down. He'd look at me and say, you know, it's the only true profession. So he wasn't happy. And the, one of his favorite phrases to say to me was when he found out I had this dream of being a writer and he saw my name in the paper. He actually said, you know, Johnny, the thing is, you're going to cost me money the rest of your life. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wouldn't call that encouragement from a parent. <laughs> <laughs> All he was doing was kind of really reinforcing how, what a loser I was going to become. And in a way, that was a good thing for me because it kind of started a fire in my belly. I think it was a good thing ultimately. But again, I've had a ton of therapy. John, I'm going to hold you here. We'll talk about college and then graduating there, getting jobs, and then ultimately we'll crescendo into barbecue television. So hang on just for one moment and we will be back here and pick up our conversation with John Marcus, giving a little origin story. Guy the Cooking, Sam, writing This Is Awesome. Love learning about barbecue royalty, don't we all? Absolutely. Green Mountain Grills is making some of the leading pellet cookers out there on the market today. You have a choice line, which is free of a lot of the technical stuff. If you don't want to spend the money on all that, you don't need it. You're more of a eye guy and thermopen type guy or gal, then Choice Line should be right where you want to be looking at. Save some money, still get a great cooker, cooks a lot of stuff. Now, if you like the Wi-Fi, the app connectivity, be able to control it from your Shaz Lounge at the family room, Prime Line is the one you're going to look at. A little bit more of a robust build on the chassis, so you have that. You have peak and ledge in size. And then you have peak in windows on the main cooking chamber and the pellet hopper, two internal bead probes. You have a light on the inside of the cooking chamber. A lot of that stuff that a lot of folks are really into right now when they're looking at purchasing a pellet cooker. Green Mountain Grills has them. What's setting them apart? Green Mountain Grills only sold through dealers. So find a dealer near you at GreenMountainGrills.com and visit that dealer. Get educated by the one that best fits your needs. And then you're off and running. You'll have success right out of the box because you have the education and the know-how behind you. If you want something to take on tailgates or camping trips, Trek is the one you want to take a look at there. It's fact, while you're at the dealer, look at all of them and then buy the one that's best for you no matter what. Get the pizza oven insert so you can have high-heat pizza during the week or on the weekends. Kids love it. And they cook in two, three minutes tops. Love the Neapolitan pies there, and they got it all. Also, GreenMountainGrills.com, having a host of other accessories to complete the Green Mountain Grill cooking experience, so you have it all right there. GreenMountainGrills.com, GreenMountainGrills.com. 
Radio.com. We are back with more John Marcus right after this. Stick around. We'll be right back. Let's get back to a guy who has more experience giving you his opinion than he actually has cooking. Once again, here's your host, Greg Rampy. Welcome back. This portion of the show being brought to you by Smithfield. Head on over to smithfield.com right now and check out all the tricks and recipes from well-known live fire cooks like Darren Worth, Jess Pryles, and Childs Cridlin. Mouthwatering flavor, no artificial ingredients. Smithfield Fresh Pork is quite simply some of the finest pork money can buy and the trusted choice of top cooks for use at competitions. And at home, we're rejoined by John Marcus as we are getting to know him a little bit better. So we're done with high school and off we go to college, but not just any school. We don't go to the Ohio State University. We also don't go to my alma mater, the oldest college in Ohio, Ohio University, founded in 1804. We go west. We go to Stanford. Why Stanford? I, I, well, first of all, I, I got in, but I, I wanted to go there because I believed it was an hour and a half outside of Los, Los Angeles. And I figured I'd end up there because I wanted to write for TV, but I had no idea about distance. So I chose that, and I, I just didn't get into any Ivy League school in the East. Mm. In, in fact, my guidance counselor, Miss Miss Del Tedesco, in a high school, she she gave everyone guidance, and we all had guidance counselors, right? In our in our high schools, Miss Del Tedesco um, basically counseled every male in the high school to become a welder. Mm. Good trade. I, what a great trade, yeah. you know, Especially and maybe not. I would have started making making smokers at some <laughs> point. But um, she took me out of weightlifting class. I was taking weightlifting because I just wanted some respect from the football coach uh, because I was in marching band. And, you know, clarinet player in marching band, you're not getting a lot of respect from the alpha males of the high Undoubtedly, school. Undoubtedly, right. However, I did on the band bus get to hold hands with Donna Gaffney. Not the Donna Gaffney. Oh, yes. The Donna Gaffney. Look at you. Well done. I I know. Well, I was was fortunate and I worked it. Uh, Also, Donna Gaffney was part of uh, uh, the high school kids that lived out at Choctaw Lake. Oh. And they were... And and they were always more exciting than the kids who lived in town. Yes. So I, I was. It was very promising, although nothing happened, except I got to hold her hand. What were we talking about? <laughs> Why you went to Stanford? I'm sorry, I, I, your uh, Mrs. So, Tedesco was counseling you poorly and took and you out of weightlifting. That's class. right. And Miss Del Tedesco said uh, said to me, you know, um, you didn't get into Yale because they found you i had an interview there Mm -hmm. in new haven they found you too forward in the interview what does that mean well here's what happened you know i was talking i went there my mom took me to new haven i think we went up on the train from new york city come to new york city and met earl wilson here and uh uh he i met him at a bar i was 16 years old met met him at a bar called gallagher's a steakhouse (laughs) 
and go all the stakes are st it's still there the stakes are hanging in the window gallagher's you can still go and uh earl wilson met me there i had a diet coke no i had a regular coke i was drinking regular coke back then and uh, earl wilson wanted you know to know what did i want to do in the business and he liked my jokes and and um he gave me some people to write to and send my stuff to but the next day he wrote a column about me <laughs> it's out there somewhere um and uh so then i was really encouraged boy my dad was really pissed off at that yeah point. but my mom and i took the train up to new haven i had this interview with the person who was conducting interviews for admissions to this school and after i spoke about myself for about 30 minutes you know i was a little precocious i think um he asked me, what, what do you ultimately want to do? And I told him I want to write for television. And then when I got done answering that question, I said to this young man conducting the interview, and what is it that you would like to do? <laughs> and he's kind of lit up and he said, well, I actually, I want to be a, I want to be a, like a recording engineer. I want to like be the person that records records in New York city. <laughs> and then I said to him, I know somebody you can talk to. Wow. And that line, I think, kept me from getting into <laughs> Yale. Did you ever have any fancy for going to Harvard and, and being in the Lampoon? I probably would have gravitated toward the Lampoon if I'd gone there. I don't, would never have gotten in, but mm. I would not have been accepted by those Harvard guys mm. because I'm just, I wasn't, you know, um, I was fortunate enough in my career to work with Al Franken. Yeah who one of the original writers of Saturday Night Live did 15 years there um, and has gone on to write best-selling books and is, you know, a brilliant satirist. And he tours the country now doing a 90 minute show, like a stand-up show. Al never got, I was at Harvard. He never got into the lampoon. Oh, wow. So I, I think it's a kind of, you know, we, we aren't the type that they liked admitting to the lampoon in those years. Mm -hmm. I'm not a pedigreed guy. I mean, I know I'm throwing out all these university names and stuff. Again, colleges I did not get into, but um, uh, uh, my background is really more like Mayberry than it was like anything else. I mean, um, in fact, one of my favorite writers that I've ever met, actually, one of my favorite comedy writers was a guy named S Steve O'Donnell. He's still a, a great writer, and he was the creator of the top 10 list on the, on the Letterman show. Wow. And I believe he's from Cleveland. And he spent the first years of his career working at Hallmark Cards. He wrote those cards. Wow. So, you, and, and he was, you know, he, he was a, a Buckeye and he, and it's, I don't know when we're from these kind of small towns and stuff and parts of the country that are in the middle of the country, we, we think about things in a different way. We see the world a little differently. You major in English. Is that it right from the start and you're all the way through, or did you have some switches on and off through those years? Well, my mom and dad, who were both quite nervous for my future, um, demanded in, in a fairly kind way, but they demanded that I, um, I go to law school before I start any of this nonsense with writing comedy for television. And I, I said I would, and I was completely lying. 
And because I never wanted to, I would never have made it. I would have been eaten alive in, in law school. So I majored in English literature, though, because I was worried there was a danger I would have to go to law school. So I didn't major in writing. I had a newspaper column and a radio show at Stanford. Hmm. Uh, I used to interview visiting dignitaries and celebrities at uh, for my show, but every person that came into that studio was made up and not that person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just lied about, uh, guess who we have here? And someone would come in doing a really bad accent or something, and I would pawn it off as, as a celebrity. <laughs> Are there any other pinnacle moments in college that you feel really continue to form who you ultimately become? Um, I, I'll say this was kind of a, yes, I got dumped by my freshman girlfriend. That was, that was like, not necessarily a pinnacle, but a real, uh, real, like, uh, uh, important event in my life <laughs> to be dumped by her. Uh, it, uh, I know I, I, I was starting to cook in college because my second year at Stanford, there was a big housing shortage and Stanford opened up a trailer park on the, pre- on the grounds of the university. And I lived with three other guys in a double wide at Stanford university. Wow. So we started, we went part of the deal to all room together was to cook for each other. And always once a week, all four of us would get terribly ill. <laughs> Nobody knew how to cook <laughs> college guys. We weren't like, we weren't like in enough to be part of the eating clubs. That was a big social thing. Did you have that in college an eating club? We had no eating club, but my, one of my best buddies in college, we agreed between us that the best way to get girls or attempt would be learning how to cook. And that's really, so I'd watch my dad grill, you know, and it was just uh, all high heat stuff that he used to do. It was never any low and slow stuff like we know now and that we love. But uh, in college, I said, well, I'll do the outside, the grilling, if you perfect the inside. And that way we can kind of play off of each other. And if, you know, a girl doesn't like this, maybe she'll like this. And, you know, ultimately try to get laid. Uh, That didn't work out very well for us. But look at the skills we started to hone and craft. Well, what? You what go. you uh, ended up with is something more lasting. Yes, ev- <laughs> evidently. <laughs> Low and slow, you know, yeah. it's more lasting. And also, like, listen, how many friends do we have that just got into a lot of damn trouble? They got into a lot of trouble yeah. with that part of their lives. And, oh, and um, yeah. And those, those early, early relationships uh, are hard to hold on to when, when you have them, we're not mature enough, but you know, some people are lucky. I mean, I'm very, I'm very, uh, admiring of couples that have been together a long, long time and met in college or met after, but that's a rarity. I think I had mentioned, so you learned to cook. What's that? No, go ahead. I was saying, so you, you college was really kind of a very instrumental element to your cooking trajectory that you were, I didn't know it at the time, other than what the, the the means to the end, the hopeful means to the end was. 
but it became so regular that there were plenty of times where we just decided we were going to cook because we didn't want to go to the dining hall or we wanted to try a recipe out. And then once I got out of college, uh, you know, I had a little Smoky Joe that we would grill on my, my, my then wife at that point. And then, uh, you know, then she brought me a, a grill when we got our first house. And that's where the whole entrance into barbecue grilling, the forum, eventually the podcast, now the live show and all that. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, I guess in, in the end it was born out of uh, some cooking in college. So that's, that's like, you know, that's life. That's a good life story. That's really, I actually, when I mentioned that freshman girl who dumped me, little piece of trivia, we stayed in touch, you know, after my wounds healed, it only took about 13 or 14 years to feel better. (laughs) Um, she became, she became a rheumatologist who practices in the South, right? Yeah. I put her husband, who's also a doctor, I put her, and, 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 and Cajun, I put her husband on the All-Star Barbecue Showdown. Really? Yeah, he's wow. on one of the episodes. And I don't even know where people go to see that show anymore. The very first year that starred Chris Lilly and Peggy Bunker yep. as hosts, that gave birth to the entire run of barbecue on television. Uh, he was uh, in the competition in Hammond, Louisiana. Wow. Uh, earlier, I had mentioned you know you doing the the Dixieland writing, uh, sending those liners into the that syndicated columnist. Uh, you know, it was pretty ballsy. And uh, in the continued show of balls, uh, I think it was going into your senior year in college. Uh, you pitch Bob Hope in person at the Ohio State Fair. And while he isn't right. like just going to start taking your jokes right there because he's probably ready to go, he does take time to write an address and say, hey, send them this way. And you do. And lo and behold, yep. you start writing for Bob Hope. That's huge. Well, it it was a surprising turn of events for me. Um, some local television producer at Channel 10, uh, when I said Bob Hope's going to be at the fair and I'd like to give him some jokes, uh, he said, I can get you backstage as he's waiting to go on. I can get you to the trailer where he's staying. Uh, trailers are a big theme in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, the reason Bob couldn't really, te- you know, give me any attention or read my stuff there. When I got back to the trailer, he was in there with miss Ohio. Oh. Not now. Kid. She was wearing the banner and the <laughs> crown and everything. There was I don't think there was any monkey business going on except he was back there with Miss Ohio. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and um there is a picture of me I could dig up. There's a picture of me standing next to him at uh, I think I was actually 19 at that point. And um he took the envelope of jokes saying, "Kid, I can't read them here. You know, I'm busy and I'm about to go on." But and then he wrote his address in Toluca Lake on that envelope. Hmm. He said, stick it in the mail. So I went back home. I didn't think anything really could happen from that, but um, I would go back to my job during the summer as a pharmacist assistant at the local hospital where my father practiced. And, you know, my father was the chief of staff on the hospital too. And uh, he got me a job because he was trying desperately. I think what had happened with my dad as this writing thing was starting to really threaten he was willing to accept me becoming a pharmacist. 
That's what he Anything. told me. He says, you know, the medicine thing, <laughs> if that's the best you can do, I will accept that yeah. is basically his message to me. So there I was like, you know, make running errands for the, the, the chief pharmacist of this very small hospital, who is a lovely guy. And I would end up going to Springfield to pick up, you know, bags of what I thought were drugs uh, for the hospital. But it turned out I was actually picking up porn. Uh, I, yeah. And and um, so this is what my dad thought was like the right path for me. Yeah, you're a porn runner. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, Deep Throat was on 8 millimeter at that point. It was like, yeah, I remember bringing it home and saying to my buddies, get, get the projector out. <laughs> yes, the projector. Wow. <laughs> Holy moly. Real to real. <laughs> the projector, for God's sakes. Um, so I would w go to work every day and I would joke to my mom as I left for work at the hospital, you know, where I wore the white coat and all that stuff. Uh, I would joke to my mom, if Hope calls, tell them I'll get back to him. And one day I came home and mom said, Johnny Bob Hope called today. Here's his number. And I called the guy up. He said, uh, yeah, um, like the jokes. Uh, tell you what, I'm going to be in San Francisco on Monday. Here are the subjects I think I need. And uh, have it to me. I'm going to be in New York first. And then um, I'll take him there. And, and you can send them to the Waldorf Hotel. That's where I'll be. Now, think about this. Like today, celebrities aren't going to do this at yeah, all. Right. Like some young guy, you're going to tell me you're at the Waldorf and <laughs> mail the jokes there. and all, But that's what he did. And so I thought, this is an opportunity. i got to really make the most of this. I stayed up for 48 hours writing jokes on the subjects that Bob Hope had told me. Like just back in the day of like Jackie Onassis. Yeah. So I'm writing Jackie Onassis jokes and um, jokes about the president then. So this would have been 70, 73. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. Yeah, 77. Whoever mm -hmm. was president in 77. And I think it was Jimmy Carter. Yeah, Jimmy Carter, it? right? Yeah. So, you know, Bob Hope had a lot to say about Jimmy Carter. He once said, I did not write this joke. He once said... Uh, yes, you know, Jimmy Carter says he experienced a lot of lust in his heart. Well, I guess that saves the price of a hotel room, doesn't it, folks? <laughs> so, so, um, I finished the jokes and I get on an airplane to New York City, to LaGuardia, which I'd never done by myself. I fly to LaGuardia, get in a cab. I don't know where I had the cash for this. I guess maybe the pharmacist gave me some cash to wish, wish me luck because I'd used some for, to pick up the porn. And, um, I went to the Waldorf hotel. I got there at one in the afternoon and waited till seven at night. Wow. And it's around seven at night. Bob Hope walks in the lobby with his wife, Dolores. And I walk up to him and said, Mr. Hope, I have your jokes. And he just looked at me and said, what, what the hell are you doing? How did you get here? And I said, I just wanted to hand these to you. And he said, come up to the room. No. Let's take a look at him. Wow. And we went up to his suite at the Waldorf. He took out my jokes and he took his pen out and he circled some and he put X's through others. And he said, these are going to be fine. There's a couple I can use here. Do some more. Now let's take a walk. 
So I walked around the area of like 48th Street and Lex or so, somewhere around there with Bob Hope. Wow. And I remember him talking about Bing Crosby on the walk. They wanted him to do another road picture in that year. And he was complaining about Bing was a bit of a drinker and he didn't want to do a movie with him. And then we stopped at the window of Hart, Schaffner and Marks, which was a clothier back then. Like, and they had stores around and he was looking at this suit and he, he said, he pointed at that suit and he turned to me and he said, I'll give you some advice, kid. Never wear double breasted. And that was it. Wow. That was my like 40 minutes with hope. So now a fresh John Marcus is done with college. And yeah, and all and now you've had this great experience, by the way, with Bob Hope. That has to be very encouraging. And now I've tracked a lot of careers over the years, but writing is not one that I would traditionally follow and or know how the the roadmap of success unfolds. So when you get out of college, how does your career start? And is the first major break the Cosby Show? Actually, before that. And they weren't really breaks, but I sold my first script uh, to a show called Give Me a Break. Yeah. I love that uh, show. With Nell Carter. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I did an episode of that show, which aired the night that Reagan got shot. Wow. So it didn't even air. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> I wrote an episode of the show that didn't air. And then uh, you're taking me back here, Greg. I'm like thinking about all this stuff. I mean, listen, I... Looking back, I wouldn't have the guts today to do what I did back then. I I was desperate to prove my dad wrong, that I actually might make enough money where he didn't have to give me any. Yeah. So I, I really felt like I had, I was going to die before I failed at this. And um, it's harder to break in now, although there's there are many more shows. When I started, yeah. there was 66 shows in prime time that you could write for, and now there's 600. Yeah. Um, but, but the, I was busy, like also writing, uh, a speculative script back then we call them spec scripts where you show someone what you can do. And I was always picking the show taxi and I wrote three episodes of taxi. Wow. And finally, uh, I had done a facts of life, but finally the taxi thing kicked in and that changed everything. Mm. So an episode of taxi was the big, was the big break oh, before Cosby, and that led to Cosby. So getting on to Cosby uh, pretty much solidifies you as a writer and you go from writer to head writer. Eventually, I think you end up uh, EP on that as well. Yeah, they call it showrunner today. Show I mean, running. I ended up, I was a, a story editor and I was, I was, uh, me mentored by a legend in television writing, a, a, a writer, a man named Paul, uh, uh, Earl Pomerantz and Earl Pomerantz was from out of Toronto, out of the comedy scene in Toronto. And he was probably one of the best character comedy writers we've ever had and wrote the famous, uh, Ted, uh, gets a heart attack episode of Mary Tyler Moore where Ted Baxter gets a heart attack. And he wrote legendary episodes of cheers mm -hmm. And, um, and taxi as well. And he was the first head writer of Cosby and he hired me, um, to be, a, it was really a staff of the two of us early on in the show. And I was a story editor then, which is the most junior 
ranking of a writer on a show. And uh, Earl didn't like, he had come from Santa Monica to do the Cosby show. They had picked him. He didn't want to run shows that much, but he, it was a great opportunity, he thought. Uh, there was a 16-minute presentation that existed of Cosby when he and I signed on. In other words, not a full episode, but enough to sell it to the network. Nobody wanted that show because Bill had his track record at that point wasn't great. And he was known to be a little difficult. <laughs> not, none of the stuff he eventually got in trouble for that was later, Yeah, but, but, but you know, his, his track record wasn't that great at they had some, you know, he had done, he played Chet Kincaid on Cosby, which was, he played a gym teacher, no, no audience, a show that wasn't particularly that funny. And he had had a variety show. And the, the show was rejected by two networks before NBC picked it up. And it was a monster. It was a monster. We went to number two. and I mean, we premiered at number two or three, I think. And then we were number one our second episode. Wow. And stayed number one for six years. And one thing I can never forget is that the first Thanksgiving where I went home to have Thanksgiving dinner with my family, including my dad that saw me as this loser. And here I was part of this number one show, yeah. which by the way, made no difference to him whatsoever. Really? No. But during a break, um, we had our dinner, our Thanksgiving dinner, maybe at five or something like that. And at eight o'clock, I decided to take a walk. Now that's when Cosby aired at eight o'clock on Thursdays. I took a walk around this small town this town with the, these le a leafy place with, you know, street lights here and there, barking dogs. And, and I walked into the neighborhoods and past houses and on the TV in every living room was the Cosby show. Wow. And I almost like was shaking. I couldn't believe what that meant. It was quite a, a moment. I mean, I was part of something that was big. I mean, it was, there were, we were all involved in mm -hmm. it. It was bigger than any single person involved, except for Bill, perhaps, because he, he really, it was his vision, the show. So you do the Cosby show. There's spinoffs, Different World. I don't know if people remember Different World, but you were uh, associated with that. Larry Sanders, yeah. of course, uh, writing yes. there. It was a huge show. I mean, I, that probably re-put HBO on the map. Um, from, you know, back when I was watching it just as a movie, uh, thing back when I was growing up and then all of a sudden here comes the Larry Sanders show and Hey Now and all the other yeah. stuff that's associated with, are yeah. you responsible for Hey Now, John Marks? Oh, not at all. I think, <laughs> I think, Hey, no, no. I worked on the fifth season of the show. I mean, I, I'd looked at some early scripts because Gary and I were, were friends and I had actually the first person to pay me to write jokes was Gary, Gary Shanley. Wow. When I, after, after, when I moved to LA, the first person to say like, no, no, you can, you can do this. And he had just started stand up, So we knew each other and we'd spent time together and reading each other's work and come, but, uh, um, he created the show with a writer named Dennis Klein, uh, and they parted ways soon after that. But I was looking at early scripts. He was asking for my notes and feedback. I think Hey Now was just something I could be corrected by this actually i think i think it was just a line mm -hmm. in the script really and then it became you know his signature line because of that actor yeah. was so astonishingly good in that role 
they were all good in that role. Oh yeah, everybody was good in in that show. That's always the like the the big the, that's like the kind of um, the marking of uh, a, a transcendent film or TV show is when everyone is like better than they'll ever be, mm-hmm. and they all go on to do good work. But that's it. Something about a project that takes wings. It's got wings that sprout and it flies. Um, that that show was really remarkable. I've been watching it actually, and I recommend it to anybody who's listening. If you haven't heard of the Larry Sanders Show, it's oh. it's probably one of the best written television series comedy, oh, yeah. and it's also it's really the founding father of all current TV comedy as far as single camera yeah. film comedy right. that is shot like a movie without an audience. That was the first. Is there ever a point? In all of this, obviously, well before the the barbecue TV stuff, which we'll get into here in a second, were you able to take a, a high level look at yourself and say, "Hey, I've really accomplished quite a bit, and I'm really good at this. I've made it." Is is that the time when you're in London going through the the streets and seeing everybody tuned in to Cosby or is it, is it after that or does that not happen because you can't allow yourself to say, Hey, I have made it in fear of getting soft or, or losing an edge. Hmm. I, um, you know, that moment in, in London, Ohio, walking around on Thanksgiving evening was more of a religious experience. It was like, this is something I can't even wrap my head around. It was, you know, like seeing a burning bush or something. It was kind of out there. But, um, you know, my dad's voice has always pinged around in my head. And, you know, anybody who's a parent out there, I would say, don't talk to your kid like my dad did. You don't want to do that. It's not a helpful thing. And I think that it sort of then keeps your, you're not letting grass grow under your feet. You're constantly moving and trying to develop a thing. And, you know, there are times when I think I got on that show. One of the benefits of working on on Cosby is that we became a hit show, but we who wrote the show, there was a hand, you know, there were three or four writers that worked right with me alongside every step of the way. Uh, Carmen Finester is one, and a guy named Matt Williams is one. I worked with a guy named Elliot Schoenman during the time of transition, and as well as Earl. Um, we were in, we didn't know we were a big TV show like we were in LA. We didn't have the trappings of that. We mm-hmm. were out 45 minutes from Manhattan in Midwood, Brooklyn, next to the Edward R. Murrow High School in a studio that was built in 1907 where they used to shoot cowboy movies in Midwood, Brooklyn. There was no show business there. And they had, they had built us a writer's office, a modest writer's office in a, like a, a retirement home where there was just a lot, lots of elderly Jews there. And, you know, as I'm kind of approaching becoming one of those, I can talk with great affection for them. But um, we would finish a rewrite at one or two in the morning. So we're talking about 1984, 1985. And we'd, you know, be heading home. They would have an intern waiting in a car to drive us home. 
And we would walk down this hallway of this kind of like fluorescently lit place that reeked of cigarette smoke, Mm. this old age, pretty much an old age retirement place. And there'd be always an old guy standing in his doorway in his plaid robe. And I'll never forget him standing there and he'd have a cigarette. And we'd be walking by, you know, these writers on this number one show, but we'd be walking by this guy and he'd look, he'd take a big drag on a cigarette and go like, how'd the rewrite go, boys? <laughs> so we didn't, there was no moment of, oh my God, this is huge. Yeah. That was like, we couldn't get big heads because then we also were, we were working with Bill, who was kind of like the beacon. He was the lighthouse of what the show was. So... I don't think I've ever had one of those moments. I, I've been fortunate enough to win some awards and, and, but the business is not at the end of the day, it's not a boy scout jamboree. <laughs> it's always a little hard. I've never done this before in the history of the show. Okay. But can we take a pee break? I'm all for it. Yeah. I'm, what am I going to do? Turn you down? It's your show. No, I'm just going to I'm going to go to a, a different logo and play some music, and and then we'll be back to finish so, it up. And so I I could I'll take one too because you know yeah. I'm like you know I'm I'm that prostate's getting up there with me. All right, let's do it on the count of okay, three. Man. One, two, three. Here we go. We'll take this time now that we're back from relieving podcasters. You may or may not understand what just happened because I might go in and edit that out, but I might not. Let me quickly do a last piece of business here. What do we love about ceramic cookers? We love that they're fuel efficient. We love that they can achieve low and slow temperatures for traditional barbecue meats. We love that they can get rip roaring hot to do high temperature grilling of steaks and other thin cuts. But what's missing in the everyday ceramic cooker lineup the ability to do true two-zone cooking 
that's where the game-changing oval design of Primo Grill comes in. The shape gives you the ability to execute a two-zone setup that you desire. Also, gives you the other ceramic grill benefits as well. Like Green Mountain Grills, only sold through dealers. So find them at primogrill.com. Find a dealer near you and then pick the size that's best for you. The bottom line is they have the best ceramics in the biz. They have patented technology. They have true two-zone cooking capabilities in multiple sizes. Who's ready for a Primo? You're ready for a Primo. I know it. And we are back with John Marcus right after this. Stick around. We'll be right back. Whole packers, full racks, legs and thighs, injecting butts. If you've never heard this before, you might think you found the best triple X show ever. Let's get back to the most homoerotic host out there today, Craig Rimpy. Back in the day, watches were made to be worn in the pocket. But after World War II, the wristwatch came into vogue. Pocket watches quickly became an afterthought, finding their way into sock drawers and scrap heaps. A tragedy. Enter Vortic Watch Company, helping bridge the gap between America's storied watch manufacturing past and bringing it to the present day where wristwatches are finding incredible popularity. Here's the coolest part. Each watch that Vortic makes is unique and one of a kind. Vortic found out on the motto that America wasn't assembled. It was built. Check out Vortic watches.com and that pretty much wraps up everything on our end business wise john thanks for letting me get a little bit of relief there as we are uh, running over the traditional time but this is too good to not continue the conversation so i appreciate that Uh, i'm enjoying it thanks for you're asking great questions it's a lot of fun to talk about this you know is it like not cool as a guest to actually i really like your sponsors like uh, well, that's the, the whole that, point. I do. I, I actually, uh, there's a Primo grill that sits in the grocery store I like to go to uh, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. It's called Guido's. <laughs> and in Guido's, there's Mazio's Meat Market, and, and he sells Primo grills. And uh, uh, one of my favorite ways to cook a whole chicken yeah. is to put it on a rotisserie over, over, the coals in the bottom of a ceramic grill. Hmm. And and I wonder if Primo gives you the option for that. I know they have a rotisserie, and uh, they also came out with a rotisserie basket, which the owner of Primo Grills has been really instrumental in, A, getting to market, but loves uh, doing chicken wings and other things you would put in it, a rotisserie it, it, basket. Toss those in the bat. yep, yeah. to, to cook a bunch and cook a bunch of vegetables in that basket. Yeah, right. Uh, that is the greatest tasting chicken is... Uh, over those coals on a on a ceramic grill, so I I really like that very much. And uh, uh, now I'm I'm lusting after a Primo ceramic grill. Let's see what we can do about that. Number one, number two. <laughs> um, somebody asked me. Um, I quoted a uh, a senator from South Carolina. Someone said to me, "How many grills and pits do you own?" And I said to them. I got more than I need, but not more than I want. That's right. There's never enough. That's how I feel. Like, and I use all of them. I use all those grills. Everything does something differently. And uh, I'm a big fan of ceramic grills. And um, I'm also, um, I'm also, you know, I, I own a, a couple of Jed Masters, yep. and that to me is like a pretty fantastic. Which they they don't make anymore. No. Anymore, no one's making them. That's a heritage piece. I, I drove to North Carolina to pick one up 
on an orange tray. It's on an orange trailer. And they were both made by Dennis Unruh, who, who invented the Jed Master, patented the Ring of Fire. And uh, I, I, someone tipped me off. Chris Lilly tipped me off where I could find one. The great Chris Lilly. And um, he and uh, so I, I, I was going to buy it. And the guy who owned the Jed Master was so emotionally attached to it that he said when he got the check in the mail from me, he cried like a baby. Oh. And he said, I'm not selling it. So he turned me down twice. Wow. And, um, you know, it's important to be nice to people, even when they disappoint you, because you don't know what's going to ever happen. Be kind. I'm saying that out loud because I need to hear it. Yeah. And he finally said, I'm letting her go. And, and I drove down there and I saw it was on an orange trailer. And he explained that the one person who owned it between Dennis and himself was a guy who made a living painting Popeye's chicken franchises. Hmm. So he had a lot of orange paint. Got it. Makes sense. So I have a Jed Master on an orange trailer. So here you're having a very accomplished, illustrious TV writing career. When does this whole barbecue... Oh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. I don't even know how the hell that even happened. When did this whole <laughs> barbecue television thing even begin to start genocizing in your brain? Not a word. Well, I think it's a word. I like that. Um, I, uh, you know, I had taken cooking classes when I graduated from college. It's kind of related to what you were saying. Uh, after college, I thought I'd learn to cook in a class because I would meet women. And the answer was, yes, I did, but they were all <laughs> married. Oh. They had gotten married and decided, you know, this is 1979. Yeah. They got married and decided they needed to learn how to cook. And um, so uh, I didn't know much at all about barbecuing as an art. And, you know, growing up in Ohio, we can attest to the fact that it is, it is not a, it was not a low and slow state. No, not a hotbed. No. And so I didn't know the cuisine at all. And I was working on the series I did with Al Franken. This is prior to him becoming a Senator. And, um, he had written a, a best-selling book, the Rush Limbaugh book. And yep. he had chosen me to create a series with him for Paramount and NBC. And we were in the middle of writing the first episode, the pilot, up in the Hudson Valley, up my house up there. And um, he decided that um, he, he and I together were going to cook his recipe for ribs. And he said, you don't know this about me, John, but I am the best grillmeister in New England. Wow. <laughs> he called it a grillmeister. And no, there are no ribs made in New England that are better than my ribs. Wow. And I just said, Al, like, that's like claiming to be the best Jewish player in the NBA. Who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> and, and we'd made his ribs. And uh, it involved my, my wife at the time, uh, Ardith, um, going out and getting us some spare ribs because that's what he wanted. Now, I didn't know the difference between country ribs or spare ribs or, you know, St. Louis, any of that stuff. And 
She also had to bring back hefty bags, four bags of Domino sugar, 12 full heads of garlic. Wow. And two gallons of soy sauce. And all that got poured into the hefty bag along with the ribs. Holy moly. Marinated overnight. And after a long day of writing the next day, we were, we were getting to the halfway point in the script. He said, I noticed you got a new grill out there. And I had an unused Weber kettle grill. That's how little I did anything with grilling. And this was, had been purchased and it wasn't used. And he said, get it hot. Get those coals hot. Get it really hot. And those ribs came out of that bag with this just bizarre color. Oh, I can't imagine. And looking back on it now, it's like everything about it was almost like a crime scene. <laughs> That's how awful it was. Except he had me grill them over the hottest part of the grill. And those damn ribs were done in 40 minutes. Yeah, I'm sure. I must have cooked them at 500, 600 degrees. And we sat down to eat and they were literally the worst things I've ever eaten. I, I couldn't even chew them, you know, and he, and I put, I, I left the, most of it on the plate. He ate his and he ate all mine. Wow. And I couldn't tell him how bad they were because like we were in the middle of a script and we finished our script and everything went well with that. But that at that night, after this thing happened, a switch flipped in my head. Why, why were these so awful? And how do you make it well? And why the hell is this a beloved cuisine when it tastes like this? So that's, that led, that started everything, getting bad ribs from Al Franken. And uh, I ended up calling Paul Kirk's home. I found him on the fledgling internet. On the barbecue forum? And <laughs> I don't know if there even was a barbecue forum in 1998. Was oh, no, that, yeah, that was before... That was before the barbecue farm. <clears throat> yeah. But his daughter answered the phone and she was kind of in a cranky mood. She said, oh, he's got me in the house all day making his damn sauce. And I said, well, how can I start to learn something from Paul Kirk? She said, you want to cook on his team with him? And I said, there's a team? And she said, yeah, it's a competition team. And I said, well, how do I do that? She said, write him a check for $500. Oh. And I sent it in the mail and I got wow. a call from him. And he said, when you get off the airplane, if you're coming on that day, you got to rent a car and drive to Lexington, Kansas. And there he was, the Baron of Barbecue, wow. set up at his cooking at the oldest barbecue contest in America. And I got to, it was Paul, Kirk, and me cooking the four categories. Wow. Trial by fire and trial by fire. And that's what it is with Paul. But I'll tell you this, that is one of the most knowledgeable, talented chefs that I think you can ever have the chance to cook around. <laughs> and he's like, he's there's talk about a Mount Rushmore. That's Paul. He, he, he truly did like was there at the beginning along with the KCBS members, yep. Carolyn Wells and her husband, Gary and, and Artie Davis and, and, and a few others, I, I forget who, I'm, I, I hate to leave out any names, but they were so kind to me. So I was, I, it was a total immersion, not just in cooking that food, but in competition cooking. Hmm. 10 years ago, everyone knows Barbecue Pitmasters. 
but before Pitmasters and the 10 or 11 season run that it went on, there were a few other iterations in varying names of high-numbered cable channels. You had mentioned the uh, All-Star Barbecue Showdown, and I think there was another <clears throat> one on HLN or OLN or something like that. It was the uh, the original show was the original show was on the Outdoor Life Network <laughs> OLN. Oh well, yeah. it was the network that had the maple leaf in the circle up in the corner, right? That was the logo, and the network was known. And God love them, I owe them a lot because they took a chance on the show. It was known as the Hook and Bullet Network. Well, makes sense considering what the majority of that programming was. You were either fishing or Completely. killing. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I called my agent. This is before we, you know, I met Chris Lilly uh, at the barbecue block party. Like, I think this, the first, first year of the barbecue block party here in Manhattan. Hmm. And I, the, here's how fortuitous is someone had loaded up his Jedmaster with lump, not briquettes. And it all went out yeah. too. And so somebody, they woke him up at three in the morning and I was up all night cause I was cooking for Paul Kirk at the barbecue block party on a rotisserie smoker. And, um, I met Chris and I knew who he was. I met him right there on 27th street in uh, Manhattan. <laughs> and, uh, I had just been talking to Al Franken about doing a barbecue radio segment on Air America mm. on his show. Mm -hmm. And he had agreed to, to, to have me go out in search of the best barbecue and also people that hated Al Frank. And that's how I, that's how I, that was my theme. And Chris very kindly, after talking to Don McLemore, they invited me to big Bob Gibson in Decatur to mm. do the radio show. Wow. That changed a lot for me because Chris is the one who pitched me for the Outdoor Life Network, the show we ended up doing. He, we didn't know it was going there. He pitched me the concept, yeah. Iron Chef for Barbecue. And you bought into it. You, you saw the vision, at least, and, and figured you could at least make an attempt to sell? Yes. And what really struck me first was the fact that I'd been doing this cooking. I, I didn't come at it as a TV person. I came at it because I was a practitioner. I really got to learn it through Paul. And I had a, a pits and spits smoker. Yep. And I was learning to cook on that. I had a Weber, I had a WSM. And I was making ribs on that. And um, I, I loved the cooking. And so I heard Chris pitch it. And I thought like, well, I think I can get on that, on board that. And called my agent up guy named Peter Benedek. He runs UTA now. He was one of the founders of UTA. And I said, Peter, I think I have my next project. Because Al and I, our show had been canceled. Yeah. Late Line was canceled. And I told Peter Benedek, I got a show I think I want to do next. And he went, okay, we're ready. What is it? I said, it's, <laughs> it's, it's barbecue. It's competition, low and slow smoking of meat. <laughs> and there was a long beat of silence. And he said to me, you know, no one's making any money off this, right? And I said, that's right, Peter, I don't care. Yeah. And and he got they got us a pitch meeting with the Outdoor Life Network in Connecticut. Do you remember what year that was? I hope I get it close to right. I think it was 2006. Wow. 
Is that, is that possible? It's either 2006 or 2008. So here's something more fortuitous or foretelling. There, in that magazine article that I was reading about you, now this is back in 2002. Let me read you a, an excerpt here, and I quote, Marcus, okay. class be, of 78. Should I be nervous? No, not at all. You, you're going to be very uh, happy with yourself here, I think. Marcus, <laughs> class of 78, currently the executive producer creator of three new television shows being shopped around the networks. One is a comic soap opera about an ultra-wealthy dysfunctional family that runs a mail-order beef business in Ellsworth, Iowa. Another is an adaptation of The Chateau, a film released this fall about two American brothers who inherit a rundown mansion in the south of France. Marcus says his goal is to, quote, bring a documentary on location, improvisatory feel to a primetime sitcom for the first time. Then there's the one about people who go in for competitive barbecuing, smoking, not grilling every weekend. Seriously. 2002. This is 2002. Yes. Um, that makes sense. That completely makes sense. And uh, it's because I had formed my team. I'd been cooking. Uh, I, I had some great teammates. I had the great Nicole Davenport, who ended up appearing yep. on the Barbecue Pitmaster show. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of stunned to hear it, though. But I, that that shows you that it was just kind of forming in my mind, and 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 I I just thought that it was an it was natural for television. So we have basically a seven year start to realization. Now you have, you know the the All Star Barbecue Showdown happening, but really I think when people think about barbecue television, they think about barbecue pitmasters, and so you have that phrase or, or or that passage from that article you wrote back in 2002 september 5th 2009 barbecue pitmasters airs the first episode on tlc and then yeah. as we'd mentioned runs 9 10 11 seasons or something like that let me tell you how i saw the arc of pitmasters it seems to start great i love that uh, season one as they call it i i, yeah. I hate to referred to that as season one because I know the previous iterations in the the life right. of barbecue television that you had. But let's say season one. So this starts great. Second season, the concept changes from reality show to game show, like a chop style thing. Mm -hmm. Kevin Roberts, mm -hmm. a.k.a. Dude Douche, is installed as host <laughs> for that season. And everyone roundly hates and shits all over him. Then in subsequent yes. seasons, it's a little weird then get sour, and then by the end, you're not even associated with the program at all. Accurate? Accurate. Yeah. I had a credit on the show throughout the whole show. I mean, my, my credit changed a little bit, but here's something I'm going to tell you that I've never talked about publicly. All right. That, listen, I'm grateful to Destination America that's when the show began to really transform is it left TLC and um, the heads of that network uh, who were discovery executives and oversaw mm -hmm. Destination America decided that the show needed to be amped up. Uh, I wrote emails, countless emails about what I feared for for the show. I'm not a research person. I'm, I'm just like, know what's authentic to barbecue. And that's where the show came from, the, you know, the origins, the sort of germination of the show. 
had to do with the truth of what barbecue was and the personalities. You know, sometimes they got amped up a little bit, but but Pitmaster season one was purely what happens. <laughs> and yeah, and it broke my heart. So I this is this is the revelation for you. <clears throat> I think after season five or six, I asked to have lunch with the head of the network of Destination America. And I don't know if this has ever happened at a television meeting in the history of broadcasting. At lunch, I begged him to cancel the show. Really? Put it out of its misery or change it with the following changes. Now, that takes a lot of guts. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure the guy wanted to basically grab me by the hair and throw my face into the bowl. I, he just probably, who's this guy? But, you know, basically, I, I, I didn't like what was happening. And I don't know if it brings any satisfaction, Greg, but to this day, I get crap on, on Twitter for Kevin Roberts and that season of the show <laughs> and subsequent seasons because season one is, you know, the people that love the, the culinary art, that love the sport, you can call it a sport. It is feel like it was the kind of, you know, the, the really the high point of, of what that could be creatively. And they responded to it and it felt real to them. And I'm, you know, this is where television can get away from you. Without the format change after the first season, though, do we think the show gets credited with inspiring those would-be competition barbecuers to give it a shot? There have been many guests on the show that have routinely said within the first two things of what's your inspiration of getting into competition barbecue. If it's not the first thing, it's probably the second thing. Well, I, I watched mm -hmm. Barbecue Pitmasters, and I said, if those guys yep. can do it, I can do it. Yep. And that's that makes me proud to think that it inspired people to actually, you know, take up this pursuit. I'm really proud of that because that's what got me thinking about doing the show was I was doing the, the, the competition queue. Um, talk to anybody that was at KCBS at the time. They'll tell you that there was a spike in their membership <laughs> that was completely lined up with the premiere of the show and the numbers of the show. So it did. Now, let's talk about why that could be a negative. Again, you know, you're talking to the guy that asked for his show to be canceled. Right. <laughs> what happened, I think, is the cart, the, I think the cart got put before the horse, which was there are some people that thought like learning how to do competition barbecue is the best way for me to get on TV. Mm. And then it's not about the art of cooking this food, which you and I both know, and everyone who's listening understands that you can spend a lifetime learning how to do this properly. It is so challenging. I mean, it, you have to know physics and you have to know m raw meat and you have to know seasoning and you have to know wood, you know, moisture content of wood and it's really something. That's why French chefs love barbecue because it reminds them of their cuisine too. They're layers upon layers mm. of info knowledge. Um, so I'm very happy that it like brought this to those people. But I think that some people got into barbecue for the wrong reason. If they thought, well, this will get me on television. 
And we used to see that in the in the kind of the evolution of the audition tapes that would come in to get on the show. There were people who clearly were auditioning to be on the show where they could give a, you know, a rat's A for, can I curse on your show? Yeah, we're totally internet. Who could give a fucking rat's ass about how to make this food right. Instead, it's like, I'm getting on television. Yeah. You know, and, and, and listen, the majority really loved the cooking and loved the personalities and wanted to be part of that scene. So that I'm grateful for. Um, but, uh, listen, I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Okay. My building is filled with lawyers and doctors and, you know, people who go down the synagogue a few blocks from here and people that go up to the, Presbyterian church up there 20 blocks north of here. And so we have all types of folks here. They all ask me about barbecue pitmasters. Hmm. When I'm on the elevator back in the days before COVID, when we rode the elevators together, they'd want to know about Tuffy or they'd want to know, you know, uh, about a Jambo pit. Yeah. It, it, they had they got it got introduced to north of the Mason Dixon line for the first time, and I think the show deserves a lot of credit for it, even if people disapproved of what happened to the format, as I as I did. Yeah. It still brought an awareness, and I think part of the reason is on Destination America. That show is really more like a nightlight. It just was on all the time. All the time. So people, when you think about the numbers of people that were surfing the channels that would just kind of stop by, there's a, there's a, one of my heroes as a comedy writer lives two blocks from me. He's an Oscar winner and a Tony winner. He's one of my heroes. And he also co-wrote Annie Hall, accepted the Oscar for the script for Annie Hall. His name is Marshall Brickman. He's one of the most formidable talents. He's a lovely person. He was asking me about how to do brisket based on the TV show. He was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> so there have been little moments that have made me very proud that sort of sneak through about people's love of what this is. Outside of the TV show, are there any other projects that you have done that you're especially proud of? Every project you work on for television, you know, uh, it's like it takes uh, a few years off your life to do it. I mean, the hours are impossible. Dealing with the network is impossible. There are a handful of people that are so successful that they don't get any network notes. But, you know, I'm, I'm like as proud of the shows that America didn't get to see as the ones they did get to see. Like I did a series with, uh, the series I did with Al Franken got canceled after two seasons. And I'm particularly proud of the writing we did on that show. And I did a series with um, Kristen Chenoweth, who went on to become a big Broadway star and a concert star. And um, Kristen and I did a very modest sitcom for Paramount and NBC that was on seven episodes and canceled, but I'm really proud of what that show was. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's almost like the things that didn't bathe in public recognition are really just uh, just the effort that went into them and the originality you tried to give them, like make you as proud of them as well. It's like they're, you know, 
may not be your biological kids, but they're they're as fantastic as all your other kids. Was there a barbecue project outside of the TV show that you were particularly proud of? Well, uh, the public hasn't gotten to see it yet, but I'm extremely proud of having gone to Kuwait and filmed the documentary of uh, five of the stars of the TV show going to uh, cook at two military bases for 5,200 people. We've talked about it on your show before. Yeah, right. And I've fielded a lot of questions about when's this documentary coming out. It's still relevant, but it still needs a lot of work. And at some point, the person that holds my purse string said, you're not spending any more money on this. It was all my own investment in it, and, and it will ultimately one day be finished. But uh, I've, I, I've, it's been put on the shelf temporarily. John, last question before I let you go. And the time you've given tonight is exceptional, and I certainly appreciate it. We live in a world of reboots these days. Is it ridiculous for me to ask if there would ever be a Pitmasters reboot sans dude douche, of course? I, I don't think wild horses could drag me in a situation with dude douche again. But <laughs> um, uh, there are things about that experience I can't even talk about because I don't want to end up in court. Yeah. But I will tell you this. Um, there's talk going on. Huh. And... I have some things in mind for it, and uh, there's a receptive person who would be my partner and be a producing entity in getting this thing done. And they brought it up. They invited me to brunch and started talking about it. <laughs> and uh, what they had to say actually got me inspired to think like this could actually happen in a new way. So, yes. We're going to sit on that note. For the rest of the evening, uh, John Marcus is a 2022 Barbecue Hall of Famer. Uh, obviously, the Barbecue Pitmasters TV show and hugely accomplished in the writing of TV shows. Uh, just uh, Google him or IMDb or all that stuff and uh, prepare to be taken aback with the breadth of work that uh, he has penned. Uh, very, very impressive. John. I can't thank you enough for taking all this time tonight and really doing a, a deep dive origin story on you and uh, sharing all of the stories and the candor and the honesty. And most importantly, over the and uh, since 2008 or, or 2009 is that first run of Barbecue Pitmasters was going to come out and you were on the show for the first time, uh, you know, now 13 years later. Um here we are uh, still talking about barbecue. Uh, you're one of the very few people that I've actually met in person and uh, had lunch with at Katz's Deli there a couple of years ago. That was a tremendous honor for me. And uh, I really appreciate everything you've given to the show. And I wish you nothing but continued success. And thank you for coming out tonight. Greg, it's been a pleasure. And I wanted to thank you for all you've done for really barbecue. What your, your show has kept it very much something that's talked about and explored it you've done deep dives on what it is and in an entertaining fashion and first rate production values and you've inspired me to get a better microphone because it was a requirement to be here right. inspired by requiring <laughs> that's right that kind of inspiration yes. which is you have no choice but uh, may i just say it's like always a great pleasure to talk to you and uh, I, I, 
thank you for uh, the questions you've asked, and I hope people were interested in, in what we had to say about it and the things that we're talking about. John, let's do it again before two years elapses again. Anytime. John Marcus, right there. All guests appear via the Oklahoma Joe's Rider Deluxe Pellet Grills Hotline. Wow, what a conversation. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're up late. And we're recording, so don't worry. Everything will be up on Thursday, an extended version of the Barbecue Central show. And you can hear the whole conversation that I had with John Marcus. We talk about the Barbecue Hall of Fame, and we talk about the very beginnings of John Marcus. Growing up in London, Ohio, and making his way to New York City, writing for Bob Hope. Wow, what a story. And great stories all the way through. Unbelievable. By the way, we did have a first hour of the show, if you missed it. Meathead stopped by. We talked about charcoal and everything that has to do with charcoal. And then we showed a really cool picture of a pineapple stuffed with a pork loin in the middle of it. Then we talked with Robert Moss. We talked a little rice. We talked a little black, unsung black barbecue cooks impact award that he wanted to add on from Adrian Miller the week before. And we closed it out with Texas barbecue and the sides that are now catapulting those into the extreme fancy of Texas style barbecue lovers. And then second hour, of course, uh, John Marcus all the way through, extending almost here until midnight. So we appreciate him staying very late for us and sharing all those stories. Big show planned for you next week. As always, Stephen Reichlin will be in amongst many others. So how do I always leave you? September 11th, 2001. I will never forget. Until next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, this is your program host, the proud U.S. American, Greg Rempe. Good night now. Hi, this is Austin Parsons, pitmaster with Smoky Mountain Q in Nashville, Tennessee, and you are listening to the Barbecue Central Show.